0: Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. A very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. If you'd like to send us your questions, feel free to email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That is questions, plural, questions, F O R hope at gmail.com note that's available 24 7 to not only receive your questions before but also during the broadcast and also after if we don't have time to get to your questions as the broadcast unfolds if you're wondering how to engage with us live we have three social media venues. The first is our website, one we, of course, recommend first and foremost at calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen, it'll be in the purple bar. Feel free to engage with us, not only at the right-hand side of the screen, but also in previous broadcasts, which will be playing automatically, and a countdown to the next broadcast in case you need to know when we will next be airing. If you'd like Facebook, it is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and if you prefer YouTube, it is a reason for hope. If you subscribe or like to us, the advantage is you'll be notified when we are going live on those respective platforms. However, given a long history of bad experiences, we know that they don't always like the things that we have to say, and we don't uh, censor ourselves for the sake of those too sensitive to hear it. So if we are taken down, note that our website will still be available, that is again at calvarychristianfellowship.com click on the watch live tab and you'll be able to engage with us face to face note our twitter page also scottr4h at twitter.com can also receive your questions but obviously we can't reply, at least not remedi- uh, immediately, Remedially would be say uh, simple but that being said, note those are the ways that you can get your questions to us but before we get to those questions or engage in our topic for this week we want to start off in a word of prayer Peter, would you like to do that?
1: Yep. Father, we love you. We thank you for all the work that you're doing in our lives and in the world. We do pray that we could dedicate this time to you. Uh, Allow us to have the attention to focus in on your word and allow it to be transformative to us in our perspective of who you are and how to relate you to others. We love you so much, Lord, and in your name, amen.
0: That is true. Now... Continuing from where we were last week, waiting for your questions to come in, we were discussing the topic of sola scriptura. For those of you who don't speak Roman, that is, of course, Scripture alone. It was one of the creeds of the Protestants where they were wanting to reform or to get back to the roots of Christianity by making the claim, where is that in Scripture? Now, that's all well and good if we, of course, all agree on the same standard, but since this was unfortunate information that hadn't been brought up for about, oh, 1,200 years at the point that it became controversial again to mention the Bible. Even people today don't necessarily know the reasons why we trust the Bible as our source for spi- uh, excuse me spiritual authority uh, compared to others, or in any case the reasons why we believe the Bible to be true in so far as the information it communicates. There are of course cult groups like the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ that would totally throw Scripture aside in favor of their extra-biblical doctrine, and there are of course other cultic groups that would make a fundamental and a deliberate distortion of the Scriptures. That would be the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society and others. Of course anti-Christian movements like Islam would just throw it out entirely, but we as Christians don't want to be involved in any of these things. So when it comes to Sola Scriptura, why is the Sola there? Why do we believe that that alone is sufficient for what exactly as well?
1: Yeah, no, so real quick recap on Sola Scriptura, as John said, it's not just only Scripture, meaning that only Scripture is a source of truth. But what we believe is that only scripture is an infallible source of truth when it comes to our relationship with God. So So, if we
0: come across a library that includes more than a Bible, we don't say it's all false. We say, if I want to know a relationship with God, I'm checking that book out.
1: That's right. Beyond those books. Yeah, that's right. And and beyond (laughs) it being uh, our sole rule of faith, meaning that it is the only text that we can go to that helps us understand our relationship with God. It's also unique in the fact that it is infallible, meaning that it is the only work that we know of on this planet that we believe can't err, it can't make mistakes, it can't be wrong about anything. If it was wrong about anything, we wouldn't believe it's infallible. So what we as Christians believe about the Bible is it's not just, you know, pontifications from ancient men about who God is. We believe that the Bible is a revealed text, that God actually revealed himself in many in various times and in various ways, as the author of Hebrews says, to men of old about who he was and how he relates to mankind. So everything we see in the Bible has to be without Error. If it has error, then it's not infallible, and therefore we shouldn't hinge our eternal hope upon it. So to make a really quick distinction between, say, our Roman Catholic friends and our Eastern Orthodox friends versus our Mormon friends and our Muslim friends and our atheist friends, the claim of the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox is not that the Bible isn't infallible their idea is that there are other infallible sources, namely the church authority, that also helps us have a relationship with God, and you need all of it, right? So you can't just have one infallible source, you have to have also the authority of the Church in order to have a relationship with God. And there are varying degrees of dogmatism there, right? So some Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox are really strict about that, so they believe that we as Protestants are out of the faith, but some are more loose about that. And they say, well, yeah, the Church is also an infallible source of truth, but you don't need the Church to be saved, it just helps you in your sanctification process, right? So I hope that... Makes sense. <laughs> and uh, next week, by the way, we'll talk about uh, Sola Scriptura from that perspective, uh, the Church versus uh, the various dom- denominations of the Church, how we view the, the Scriptures. Now, what we're going to talk about today is how these other cult groups view Scripture. So what the cult groups say, uh, specifically Mormonism and Muslims, is, well, Scripture was infallible, There was a time in which it actually was a reflection of God's Word, but it has been corrupted over the ages. So while it does contain some truth, it is not infallible. It is actually fallible. It does have flaws and errors in it. So this is why in the Eighth Article of Faith for the Mormons, they say we believe in the Bible as so long as it is translated correctly right? So it was infallible at one point, but it's been corrupted. Muslim, same thing. If you go through the Muslim texts, very high praise about the Gospel in the Old Testament, right? In the Quran. In the Quran. Really, really high praise. It's very clear that Muhammad believed that the writings of the Old and New Testament were infallible and that they were authoritative, but obviously they don't agree with his revelation. So, Other people down the road had to make an excuse, which is, well, it must have been corrupted, right? Originally, it was okay, but it's been corrupted. So we'll deal with that first. But then the atheist would say, well, it's been corrupted, but also it was never an infallible source of truth to begin with, right? It was just, it's just man's thoughts about God. And, you know, man gets some stuff right and he gets some stuff wrong. And so we need to be able to take the Bible with a grain of salt, right? I'm not, you know, some of the more. Uh, wise atheists out there would say, like, I'm not going to throw the Bible out altogether, but I am going to say that it's not infallible, right? It has some errors in it, as long as with some truths. So let's start with the Mormon and the Muslim thing. Isn't it true that the Bible's been corrupted, Sean? Isn't it true that it's just been changed irrevocably from the past?
0: Uh, You'd have to show me where and when, because as far as the Bible is concerned, we have more evidence to test and examine the way it was transmitted throughout the centuries, if not millennia, than any other book or collection of books in ancient history. When we go back farther than 500 years, obviously even more recently than the printing press, things had to be copied by hand and we can allow for typos to creep in, but as we talked about several weeks ago in regarding the errors in the transmission of the Bible, the concern about a proverb, a proverb, having two Hebrew words that are difficult to translate but are nonetheless clear as they're presented in the original, a typo concerning the name of a king in a chapter that set the tone but gets the name of the king right three more times in the same chapter, and on it goes, don't exactly strike me as error unless you're being... what would be an appropriate word to use on uh, Reach Radio? Um, Fussy (laughs) about the issue? And that's what we need to clarify with people. If they define for us, well, any change, if anything has been altered, meaning if you put down, this is the most common, by the way, error in the New Testament in particular, you spell the name John with one N or two, or if you change a word from one language into another, that counts as an alteration and thus a mistake. Well, I'm sure you'd get a professorship at some universities if you made that claim and wrote a book on it, not naming names, but the point being made is that. That's not a rational definition of change, because otherwise everything's corrupted and therefore unreliable the moment you communicate something verbally, and it's not verbatim the same thing that we mean. When we say that the Bible is inspired as far as a revelation is concerned, we don't think that, you know, God... Uh, set up the whole marionette system, wrote something down through them, and then, oh my gosh, this is scripture, when they finally came to. No, we believe that God used people throughout history, their perspectives, and their personalities to accurately not only write down information, but emphasize certain pieces of information over others in order to communicate what? As we said, the nature of God and our relationship with him, how to have that. In so far as the history that can be examined, We ask, like, for instance, Roman experts like Sura. Ramsey, who made the observation, just looking at the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, that the author of this work was a historian of the first rank, that he knew the right questions to ask, the right sources and information to give so that later generations could verify it, and on it goes. When it comes to the copies upon copies upon copies, they number in the hundreds of thousands, and that's including all the various languages that are concerned and involved in this process, and we can look and with a knowledge of the these languages, by the way, examine how from Koine Greek to Ethiopian to uh, Latin to any of the others within centuries of the original, which by the way is unheard of as far as ancient history is concerned, and know as they were transmitted that these things not only existed a long time before the skeptics claimed that they did, but also include the same information, even though it's presented in different ways. And I mean different ways, as in language format, not in different, uh, I guess, uh, accounts. Like, we don't have the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then in another Bible we have Tom, Dick, Bill, and Harry. We're talking about a preservation of substance, of message, and knowing, and being able to examine that based on evidence. The Mormon and the atheist and the Muslim are at odds with reality if they are to object to the scriptures that we have and say it was corrupted in such and such a time. It's easier for the Muslim because they go against their own Quran in making that objection. It's somewhat easy for the Mormon in noting that the only reason we should trust their authority is because of the miracles that back up the information we're told in these things, but on it goes. When we're messing with the book, messing with the definition and foundation of a faith. And if someone, anyone, were to come to you and say, well, the Bible's good, but you're talking to a cultist, and you need to be very aware of what's going to happen next and examine it carefully. Don't dismiss it out of hand. But all truth should be testable and consistent in that standard, which is why we believe the Bible, because it not only presents a standard, a reasonable standard for knowing spiritual truth, but also meets that standard reasonably.
1: Yeah, a couple things to add to that, and then we'll get into the idea of why we believe it—it it is inspired by God and not just by man. But um, number one, the people who believe that it was corrupted, they paint a picture of one centralized church governance that had power early on and was able to change the text. The problem is that that doesn't match up with history. For the first 300 years of, of the early church, They were a persecuted minority. They were writing on little pieces of fragment that they could find, like little sheepskin and stuff like that. And traveling very frequently in fear for their lives. That's right. You never had a controlled—one controlled text by a centralized government. You had multiple forms of delineation of the New Testament spreading out in multiple different languages over multiple different continents, all without any centralized power organizing these texts. So therefore, as Sean said, once you collect them all and you compare them, if they vary greatly, then you could say, okay, obviously each person is the telephone game and each line of transmission really kind of went their own way. And now we have this text that looks like this and this text that looks totally different. No, what you do when you line them up, you realize that they all agree. They all agree about the basic tenets of the Bible, meaning that no matter which chain of transmission you look at the gospel of luke looks the same As Sean said, there might be minor variants, like spelling and things like that, but overall the message is completely, completely maintained. Even a skeptic like Bart Ehrman, who wrote the famous book Misquoting Jesus, admitted that no major text of Christianity, no major doctrine of Christianity, has been changed through any of these variants. Which is what we mean by reliable transmission. That's right. Uh, The the next important thing that I want to bring up about this means of transmission is, once again, it's not as though you also had a centralized body that was able to regard or disregard books based on their own whims. Because it was just a group of people spread out and persecuted, you didn't have that. Right? They weren't arbitrarily picking what books they thought were inspired, These, they were only picking letters that were written by the Church members who were inspired, meaning the Apostles. And right? these weren't the kind of texts they would treat lightly, since they
0: were daily fearing for their lives because of it. That's this right. wasn't the sort of information they'd play fast and loose with.
1: Absolutely. So let's move into why we believe it in, it's inspired. So you could look at other texts like the Quran or the Book of Mormon, or even the texts of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, which are New numerous. And you can look at them and you can say, do they contain some truth? And the answer is yes. Once again, we're not denying that any truth at, at all exists in these texts. Of course, the Vedas contain truth. Of course, the Quran contains truth. The point is, is that if they're not infallible, you have to have something else as an objective standard to measure what what is fact and what is fiction within those texts so why do we believe that the bible is infallible and can act as that objective standard well i'll give you a couple reasons then sean can give you a couple more and we can wrap up for today so the first one that i'll give you is that the bible doesn't err on any of the physical claims that it makes so while the bible is not a science book it does contain scientific claims and if you compare the story of genesis to any other myth of origin you want to name They're very different, right? In all the other myths, you have the various parts of the earth and the globe and the universe talking, right? You have the moon talking, you have the earth talking, right? In the, like the Grecian origin story, you have the sky and the earth copulating and forming life, right? You have various things like that. The Bible doesn't have that. The Bible has a monotheistic God who creates the world out of nothing. It's only been very, very recently, like within the last 100 years that we figured out, oh, the Bible was right. There was nothing at one point and then there was everything at another point. How do we justify that? So the Bible gets all the claims that it makes about the earth in Job, it says that he hangs the earth on nothing, right? That's that was very a novel idea. Everyone believed, well Everything has to be resting on something, right? So, what what is the earth resting on? Only in the Bible does it say it's resting on nothing, right? There is it is suspended in the cosmos, right? So, the various scientific claims that the Bible makes, it gets right. The Bible makes claims about human society, it gets them all right. The Bible makes claims about psychology, it gets them all right. The Bible makes claims about his, history, things that happen in real time. Archaeology has vindicated the Bible every single time that archaeology has discovered things then we can go on and on. The second one and the final one that I'll give for the sake of time today is that the Bible has a large amount of prophecy. Right. How much prophecy does the Bible contain, and why is that significant, Sean? Well, it's about
0: maybe a third of the entire text, and understand when we say prophecy, we don't just mean claims about the future, it could also be claims about the past or the present. But speaking on behalf of God, literally a spokesman, is what it means to be a prophet, to prophesy. So when someone claims things that either go beyond their perspective or their ability to know, for instance, in the books of Moses, he recalls history that he was not privy to, and you have to assume one of two things. Either the information he got was handed down orally, very well, mind you, getting customs right historically, locations right archaeologically, and going into details that he had no access to because they predated his life by centuries. You have to account for the information that we have. If this information was revealed to him, then that source is at least capable of communicating truth in regards to the past. In regards to the present, present, the prophets could also communicate truth in regards to history at face value. If they got the customs of the time right, if they got the uh, sort of details that would match the eras and the time periods, and the, of course, I guess, uh, geographical features they described themselves traveling through, then the prophets describing these things were real people speaking at real times and in real places. And finally, concerning the future, if the past is accuracy of prophecy, communicates that God is at least capable, or whatever these men are speaking on behalf of got their facts right in the past, that these were real people in history speaking of their present, what are the implications when, for example, the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the letter of how many years Israel would be taken into captivity by an empire that hadn't actually gotten on its feet yet as a military threat to the Middle East? How could he have figured out not only uh, uh, dating his life, the prophet Daniel, to describe the succession of world-ruling empires that would follow after Babylon, when, as we recall from Isaiah's time predicting Babylon's rise to power, didn't even exist yet, as far as that was concerned. When we're talking about Daniel being brought to specific locations, noting this is going to be the seat of an empire that's going to go beyond your lifetime, when it describes in detail, Alexander the Great is a fantastic example, especially in Daniel 10 through 11, but the point of detail that we most emphasize is Jesus of Nazareth. How 40 years after his execution would he have known the exact not only fact, but way that Jerusalem's temple would be dismantled and destroyed by the Roman legions? They were on shaky terms with the Roman government, but they never expected legions, plural, to come and tear down and basically an architectural marvel that they themselves sponsored. Nothing could have seemed more unlikely. So we piece together all these details and ask again, in history, they got information right. In the present, they got that information right. Real people communicating real information, real people who existed in history got their information correct, but also the information or the source thereof, new things beyond human capacity being bound by time and space all those things then ask, okay, so if you've got uh, an impressive track record, let's say they said a lot of things like Nostradamus or any of the other uh, you know soothsayers and so forth, I can't think of a name right now, but all these individuals and saying well maybe they just collected all the information that they got right and excluded all the information they got wrong and you know just whatever happened to stick to the wall ends up being what we remember as their achievements. Not in not, not only not entirely, not at all. Because we have in Scripture, and we mentioned this before, the standard for someone who claimed to be a recipient of Scripture, a spokesman for God. In Deuteronomy 18, if they got anything wrong once, speaking in the name of God, not, doesn't mean they have to be perfect, doesn't mean everything they say has to be a truth statement. If they lie once in their lives, suddenly they're taken out back and flogged. It's if you speak in the name of God falsely, it's a capital offense. These people had no reason and no motive, and certainly, given the fact that the entirety of Scripture was spoken to a nation and within a legal system that would enforce these things happily, no opportunity to lie. Also note that if you were to communicate these things not only in a verbal sense, you also had to be consistent with prior revelation and, most importantly, provide visual examples. You would note that when miracles tend to happen in the Old Testament—I know Sunday school makes it out to seem like it's just one after another—no, it was in spurts at particular times in history. Why? Because this is when God was revealing more information. Words were always backed up with deeds. Now. If I just, you know, pull the Dr. Weird on everybody and say, it says that it's true and I wrote it, so it must be right, and we think that's the standard for the Bible, again, they got that from Cartoon Network, not from Scripture. The Bible lays out a standard. Is this reasonable? If they provide accurate information, consistent information, verify that information in the context of it being a capital crime if they don't, and provide public miracles in order to verify God's the one speaking here, not me, is that a fair standard to say, I want to listen to what this guy says about God? The Bible lays down that standard as its own means of revelation. If you don't think that's fair, I'd love to hear an alternative, but here's the point that's being made. When the Bible sets up its standards, sets up its goal, it sounds like the sort of information that I'd be hearing from God, because he not only puts information forward, he puts his money where his mouth is, or where his spokesman's mouths are. And the point being made is just that. Why do we believe Sola Scriptura? Because it follows through on a standard of reliably and fairly tested information that we'd expect God to provide if he were communicating with us. The standards are fair, they can be backed up through archaeology, what can't be backed up obviously can't be dismissed on that basis either, but what has been spoken has been verified with publicly verifiable miracles, all centering around the most significant figure, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. We start from him, and we work out, not the other way in. We don't say, and we'll talk about this more next week, what does the Church say, and ultimately how does this tie back to Jesus? And we say, here's Jesus, how does this tie back to what your Church is teaching? That's how we determine truth.
1: Yeah, and uh, just follow up on that real quick, one last point, is that The historicity of the resurrection of Christ is another big reason why we believe in Sola Scriptura. So, in Jesus' life, he affirmed that the Bible was the sole infallible rule of faith. That's why he spoke from the authority of Scripture and not on his own authority very often. He always said, Have you not read? Not, I'm God, let me give you a new revelation, right? So, Jesus believed in Sola Scriptura. That's how he taught, that's how he referenced Scripture, and he backed it up by rising from the dead. If you want to know why we believe that was a historical fact, you can ask about it because it is important. Oh, yes. All right, but going out to your questions
0: now, uh, interesting place to start, I suppose. Here's a question from Nathan, who wants to know, what does the Bible teach in regards to nudism? his current understanding is that it condemns lust, that is the Bible, but not nudity. Nudists seek to separate nudity from lust and be able to share life in the nude, appreciating what God has made without lust involved. From what I can tell, this means for Christians, nudism is permissible, provided lust can be kept away from nudity. Well, again, that's a bold assumption to make, Nathan, and if you can find a culture that can do so entirely, I'd love to see it, but you'll find that even the most I guess loosely attired cultures uh, you know don't recommend it obviously but you go to certain areas of Africa or uh, New Guinea or so forth and the women generally don't have to wear tops and so forth and that's not considered an object of lust for people there it's just considered normal you suddenly bring that in the United States and you get a public citation for indecency why because different cultures would note coverings are required in certain areas, but even in those areas they're still wearing skirts and so forth. This is the point that's being made. If I were to assume that there can be that in mankind's fallen state—and this would be the Bible's objection to that, Nathan—could possibly in total nudity, total vulnerability, total exposure of your body to another and not produce any lust, then we are either glorified or we are lying (laughs) and this is the point If I'm in a place, or if I'm in a culture where they perceive lust differently, the lust is still going to be there, that there will be some form of clothing and covering, because that was the first feature of our fallen sinful nature revealed in Genesis chapter 3. The moment we separated our hearts from God, suddenly we looked at our nakedness and felt ashamed. This is the point that's being made, and note, if you feel ashamed, it's probably because you should be, especially in this case, with a fallen heart that is now universal for man to, in his own effort, seek to undo that stigma, it's trying to fix a problem that's spiritual, not physical, not visual, not cultural even. There has to be some form of covering because of this standard. So if we're going off the Bible, again, it wouldn't support nudist colonies or nudist causes or nudist philosophy because it fundamentally turned the gospel on its head, that we can undo the effects of our fall if we simply just get rid of the social stigma and look at it from a new perspective. No, the fundamental nature of the gospel is that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and the awareness of our nakedness was the first aspect of that. If that's going to be undone, that means that the Holy Spirit has fulfilled His purpose in all of our hearts, and we don't believe that's happened yet.
1: Yeah, just to give one more reason. Uh, to add to what Sean just said in Leviticus 18 and in various other parts of the Old Testament the Bible uses a euphemism for sexual conduct as uncovering the nakedness of someone else so this is just one example Leviticus 18 verse 6 none of you shall approach anyone who's near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness I am the Lord the nakedness of your father the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover now that's clearly not saying if you ever see your father or mother naked you've sinned and God's gonna kill you because if you keep reading, the penalty for this is is death. So obviously it's not what it's saying, but if you read it, it is a very clear and direct euphemism for sexual conduct. Now, why would the Bible do this? Well, clearly what's being shown here is that just like there is a exclusive claim to bodily autonomy that occurs within marriage that not only includes physical contact, but physical demonstration. So just like for me, I could say, well, can I have sex with another woman other than my wife if we don't lust after one another? What if I'm thinking about my wife while I'm with this person? Well, no. Even if mentally I'm being faithful, physically I'm not, and the body counts for something, right? There is and an. Ex- I don't buy that right? either. Right? <laughs> I don't buy it. and yeah, I, I, you you shouldn't, right? But uh, you know, there is an exclusive claim that my wife has over my body, and that is good. That is marriage. That's what. That's the whole reason why you do it. By choosing this one person, you are saying no to everybody else that also refers to your bodily autonomy when it comes to your revelation of your body to others. So I don't want to present my body as if it is available for anyone else, right? I want to present myself as if I am being exclusive to my wife. What that means is the way that I dress or undress in front of her is different than anybody else on this planet. If I am showing or revealing my body to others in the same way as I would to my wife, I've missed something, right? Because what I am communicating without words is my body is available, right? It's available to be looked at, it's available to be touched, it's available to be uh, basically sexualized, right? That's what I'm communicating to people when I walk around that way, which by the way, would elevate this claim beyond simple nudity. So you can't just say, well, you know, I'm going to walk around all day in a speedo because at least I'm not naked. I'm covering up the, the bad parts or for some of the clothing that various girls are wearing today, which essentially just cover the bare essentials of nudity, right? To technically call it not nudity. Uh, you are still presenting your body in a way of availability and accessibility. You're not presenting yourself in a way of exclusivity to one partner. You are presenting yourself as, a, as an individual, as a body to be leered at. Now, just because we wear clothing, do we, dis- do we get rid of lust? No, that's a problem with the human heart, as Sean said. It will only be done away with when we see God face to face. However, you can still communicate hey, you can still lust after me if you want, but that's not how I'm going to dress, right? I'm not going to dress in a way that invites lustful gaze. I'm not going to dress in a way that invites dehumanizing or objectifying behavior, but I will dress myself in a way where I'm demanding respect and I'm demanding to be taken seriously and to not be lusted after. If you make the decision to do it anyway, that's on you. That's between you and the Lord. So that's the idea. The way we present our bodies to other people does matter, and that's what we see in the scriptures. All right. Um, Question we received
0: yesterday from Nicola—we didn't get the chance to address it in detail, we wanted to give it more time Uh, today—the question is concerning—I don't know if it's asking for a friend or not, but if you are in a situation where one of the spouses is committing adultery, the individual who is committing adultery is able to attend church— Without seemingly any guilt, there seems to be a comfort to them there. Meanwhile, the people who are the victims of this compromise, uh, the spouse and the children, are hurt. They're supposedly not receiving comfort in this situation. How does the Bible address this phenomena? Why is it that the people who are sinning uh, tend to be most comfortable with that fact, and the people who are the victims of that sin seem to be experiencing the most hurt from it?
1: Yeah, no, very good question. So basically when we experience any amount of pain, it is the the amount of pain is proportionate to how things ought to be. So for instance, if I, uh, using physical pain as an example, there's a way that my body ought to be. And the more out of line I put my body, the more pain I'm going to experience. So for instance, if I simply bend my finger too far, that will hurt because that's not how my finger ought to be. But if I bend it all the way until it's touching my wrist that will break it and cause a significantly larger amount of pain because that's really not how it's supposed to be. Uh, Morality works the same way as well as with physical harm. We know inwardly as, as people, as human beings, that death is a perversion of God's good creation. That's something that we just sense as human beings. No one has to communicate that to us. If a child who doesn't even understand what death is loses a loved one, they will experience intense emotional grief and pain because they understand this is not how it ought to be. Now, that also applies to morality. We experience guilt when we crawl out of or we step out of line in which we know how we ought to behave. And again, the further you step outside of that line, the more intensely you're going to experience that guilt. Now, with all of these things, you can have endure a process of deadening pain. So there are people like contortionists who through various either double jointed behaviors or through just pushing their bodies to a particular point can actually turn off their pain receptors to that thing. So they can contort their body in a way that it ought not to be and experience zero pain. In the same way, people can contort themselves in an emotional sense. They can teach themselves that, oh, well, it doesn't really matter if anyone dies or I lose anyone because life doesn't matter and everything is useless, right? Using that nihilistic bend, I can actually train my emotions to not be sad about bad things that are happening, right? Mm -hmm. Buddhists are a good example of this. Yeah, and the Bible describes this phenomena in... First uh, Timothy 4 and
0: verse 2, as well as in Romans chapter 1, in noting that God has given them over to their mm-hmm. depraved mind, that their consciences, their ability to be aware of their guilt, has been seared with a hot iron. And that's not just an intense state of pain, but afterwards to be burned is to literally destroy the nerves. You don't feel how you ought to. So the fact that that individual is not experiencing guilt or shame
1: for what they've done... They, they be can be very afraid. Yeah, they they can go to church... That's not a good thing, right? (laughs) And uh, the example that, the, the, the very vivid metaphor that the Bible uses all the time for this is leprosy. Right. So with leprosy, or we call it today Hansen's disease, one of the effects of it is it shuts off pain receptors, especially in your extremities. Now, that sound that may sound like a really big boon to a lot of people that have hurt themselves or stubbed their toe lately. They'd be like, that sounds pretty amazing to not feel pain. Uh, you don't realize what an amazing gift pain is if you think that way. What pain tells you is something is wrong. If you were able to able to turn that sensation off you would be very much open to breaking bones without realizing it or incurring massive gashes and lacerations in your body without knowing and then in invariably getting infections that might kill you because you're not aware that you're cut. This is what happens to people who have Hansen's disease or leprosy. They don't know that they're injuring their body, but they are. And because they've shut their pain receptors are shut down, they end up doing far more damage to their bodies than they're even aware of, and they usually do die of infections and things like that. So pain is a gift in that way, just as your conscience is a gift in that way. So if you were able to emotionally shut yourself off to emotional pain or loss, you haven't done anything any favors for yourself, because, again, emotional pain signifies that something bad has happened. If I, you know, Andrew Solomon, who's not a Christian, but he wrote about grief and suffering, he says pain or emotional loss is the specter that resides over any emotional entanglement. To think in your mind, well, if my wife dies, I'll just get another one proves that you don't actually love that person right? Love has to include the propensity for loss, and that loss will always hurt. C.S. Lewis says much the same thing in The Four Loves, which I'm not going to quote right now, but uh, it's very important to understand that. Someone who shut themselves off to any amount of pain hasn't done themselves any favor, and that includes, as Sean was alluding to, guilt as well, right? Guilt lets us know that I'm morally compromising myself, and I ought to do something different. That guilt should alter my behavior. If you shut off all guilt, you've shut yourself off from any amount of change, repentance, or restoration within your life. It's a very, very negative thing to do that. So yeah, as Sean said, there will be people who have seared their conscience with a hot iron and are performing massive sins and don't feel bad about it, but... Don't envy those people, they are in deep, deep trouble. Just because they can't feel the pain doesn't mean that pain isn't occurring, right? Doesn't mean they're not contorting their souls into different directions that is going to be eternally significant to that person. Um, so beyond So it's that- clear just to note God's not comforting them. God's, if anything else, judging
0: them by letting them go so far into this that they literally will have to see, uh, you know, you can take away pain so that you don't feel yourself banging your arm, but if God allows that pain to be so deadened that you don't notice until you keep hitting this thing, you keep damaging yourself to the point where the bone snapped through in order to recognize something is wrong, that's the judgment. But if, on the other hand, what is the comfort right if any that's being provided towards the victims of this
1: right and and that word comfort is very telling right what is comfort comfort is consoling someone after they have sustained an injury right so for instance the most basic one that people see is when you see a child crying you know just last night my daughter she's a little bit of a daredevil she rolled off our bed and just smashed into the ground and was crying and i picked her up and i held her now me holding her and consoling her didn't take away the pain but it provided her comfort to get through the pain, and that's very important. So God's comfort is not a removing of the pain. God's comfort is a presence It's a relational presence within the pain that enables you to endure it. So when the Bible talks about God's comfort, that is what it's speaking to. So if you are feeling intense pain after being left or abandoned by someone through their adulterous behavior, that is actually how you ought to feel. You should feel bad. That signifies that you did love that person, you valued the relationship, and they trounced it. They destroyed it through their negative behavior. And so you should be feeling that deep grief and what God is going to do for you is he's going to console you in your grief, but he won't take it away, because the grief, once again, points to the fact that something was broken, and it's not a good thing. And note, God could even use that to
0: perhaps give sensation back to that individual, because while their conscience may be seared, they can see that yours isn't, and that could ask them very important questions the Holy Spirit can hopefully use later on, because while hurt, un- deed has been done to you, we don't want to adopt the mindset of the world that wants vengeance now. We want restoration now, because I also have vengeance due me. remember that in all these situations, and uh, let us know if we can be of any other support to you. Um, Here's a question from Bob, who wants to know, are there pros and cons of a church having membership, in your opinion? I don't see anything in Scripture that would come close to mandating having Church members, but are the reasons that many Church do that just practical in nature? Thank you, Bob." Yeah, it's pretty much the answer. When it comes to Church membership, what they're generally trying to avoid is they've seen some sort of, like any policy, abuse in the past and have set up a tradition that isn't in contradiction with Scripture, that's key. But setting something up so that if someone's going to regularly attend a fellowship, they've seen one or two many false prophets or people trying to set up small groups, and they want to be able to basically separate the newcomers from people who the elders have examined as far as their doctrine, their intentions for being there, and that you can trust these people as members of that Church as opposed to others. Uh, When it comes to the Scriptures' presentation of Church leadership and structure, it doesn't talk about the requirements of the congregation apart from their affirmation of the Gospel. The only requirements are for those in leadership and we'll be happy to discuss those at a separate time. But when people—and this is what I think the essence of the question could dovetail into—people bring up traditions, things that you do in church that aren't necessarily in the Bible. I mentioned it briefly, but what's the line?
1: Yeah, yeah. So when it comes to traditions, uh, as Sean was kind of mentioning, usually these traditions do grow out of some sort of necessity, as Sean was alluding to, when it comes to how do you figure out who is just— showing up on a sunday like hey i want to check this out and maybe it's a non-believer maybe it's someone who doesn't know much about God, they're pretty unchurched, how do I distinguish that person from the person who is long-term attending? Because it's very clear in the Bible that we're to treat these different categories of people very differently. So if there's someone who's a non-believer and they show up to church, they are not under the qualifications and the governance of that church, right? There's certain levels that they are. So for instance, they can't you know, start hurting people or something like that. We're You're going in my to- my house, you play by my rules. <laughs> That's right. But if I find out that someone is attending church and they're, let's say, in sexual promiscuity, they're sleeping around. Well, if they're not saved, I'm not going to hold them to a church disciplinary standard just because they come under the roof of this church. I'm not going to be like, well, I'm going to discipline you out because you're in this sexual promiscuous relationships, right? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 5. That's right, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you to look up that up on your own time, but essentially Paul just says to the people outside of the church, I'm not going to hold them to the law because they're not in the church. So someone who shows up is not in the church. So people developed the tradition of membership in order to figure out, well, who's just showing up and who wants to make this their church home, and therefore are underneath the auspices and the governances of the church elder board, right? And they came up with membership. Now, every church... Does this, by the way? There's only one type of church that doesn't do this, and these are the really hyper seeker sensitive churches that are just like, well, anyone just come in, and I don't really care. I'm not going to ask you about anything going on in your life because God has saved it. In the hyper grace churches that are like, well, you know, repentance is just behavioral modification. You just you don't want to go change into please God or something, do you? Right? Churches like that, they'll never really get into your personal life, and therefore they don't really have a governmental structure, so they're not going to do this. But all sound churches do this. The question is is, isn't, should we do this? The question is, should we make it more formal as opposed to informal? So at our church, we do the same thing. We are aware who's coming into our church. We try to get to know them. We try to know where they're coming from. Uh, When we meet them, that's why we have greeters at the door. That's why we have elders like walking around, trying to meet people, trying to pray with people. We want to get a good idea, and we'll kind of calibrate it a little bit. Once we see people attending for a longer period of time, then we might try to make more of an effort to get to know them, more of an effort to get them plugged in to various aspects of the ministry, and to figure out where are you coming from? What kind of doctrinal background do you have? You know, Are you coming from an unchurched background you coming from a mormon background you coming where are you coming from and then we're going to try to figure out what to do with you in that sense we just don't have it formalized we don't have any formal memberships other churches try to formalize it, because it makes it easier for them to understand uh, who's coming and who's going. I think the mistake that some of the more formal churches can get into is, well, once you establish church membership, you get rid of any possibility of hypocrisy or someone who is a church member stepping out of line. No, people can become church members, pull the wool over your eyes, and still spread false doctrine or still commit a lot of blatant sin within the congregation that's going to disrupt your fellowship, right? Membership doesn't actually dissuade from that kind of behavior, it just, like I said, formalizes a process that is necessary, which is to know who is in your Church and where are they coming from. Yeah,
0: so when, and this is also another error that's made when people withhold people from hearing the Gospel because you're not a member, that's unbiblical, and this is the point. When we ask what traditions are in line with Scripture, not necessarily in Scripture, but in line with it, the most grace that we can give to most of them is that do they go up to and no farther than what Scripture defines? And this is the point. Would the Bible include... Uh, prescribe the idea of having church members? Not necessarily. Would it allow for it? Well, since there's no information against it, we can't condemn it on the basis of Scripture. But then you have to ask, how is it executed properly? Are you withholding the gospel from people? Then Scripture would disagree with the membership, not because it says you shall not have church membership, because it's not to withhold water from those who would come to it. That's the point that's being made in Acts, to make the reference, what's withholding the from receiving water, the Holy Spirit, and so forth. Cornelius is the Centurion is the one I have in mind. But the point also being made is you also don't want to get into that sort of rigidity. Does that does the, does the Bible uh, describe or prescribe the idea of assigned seating? No, but that could, uh, I guess, dissuade some unneeded drama for people <laughs> when uh, a new person comes and sits in and says, that's my seat. Well, if they have a name tag on it, maybe that'll help, but it also just makes things weird, so you have to just ask, is this practical, or is this a—and here's the key— a hindrance to the sharing of the gospel. That's what you always have to ask when it comes to uh, to tradition in practice. Now, tradition and belief, that would be another issue as well. Uh, we, uh, generally in the Church, you know, people are allowed to raise hands or lower them as they see fit. There are churches that have that universal standard, raise your hands with me, the worship leader will call out, and it's not a suggestion. Others that uh, kind of look at you weird and say, can you put your hands down if you're being a distraction to people? Usually Baptists, that's a joke, but you get the idea. <laughs> not to be drawing attention to yourself in practice or in belief, not necessarily doctrines that interfere with Scripture, because the Psalms both just emphasize, I'll raise my hands to the Lord, but you have to ask, what reason for that? It's noted in worship, not during the message necessarily. Uh, When we talk about uh, the way in which a pastor's going to teach, it does note they sat down to teach, but that doesn't mean the pastor who's standing up (laughs) is violating the gospel because that was just how a teacher was recognized, so on and so forth. When we get into problem areas, and I'll just mention this briefly because it's relevant to the point, is when we start treating things like Scripture that aren't, and this is not just for practice but for doctrine. For example, uh, Mariology, theosis, those sort of things, the idea that we could be fully glorified before we get to heaven. That is in direct contradiction of Scripture. The idea that Mary is our co-redemptrix, and that it is by grace and her uh, intercession for us before the throne of God that we are saved, that's against Scripture. We need to make sure that we call out those doctrinal traditions where they violate that. But if people just say, hey, uh, you know, when we baptize, we're going to do it, you know, maybe uh, once every three months, once a month, every service, doesn't mean that we're withholding salvation from people. You say, no, you should be baptized baptized immediately after you get saved. Great. I think that's an interesting set of priorities, and I'm glad you're putting forward the water bill for that. But if, on the other hand, they'd say, unless you're baptized right after you're saved, you're not saved, now we get into problems. So note those traditions. I know it's a bit of a... <laughs> Uh, departure from just church membership, but that's what we want to keep an eye on. Is it just a practical thing? Yeah, and those things can be allowed, but make sure that your pragmatism doesn't interfere with the Bible, that's the buck where it stops to mess up the colloquialism. Having said, a uh, question as well, uh, this is sent along to us from Yari, who wants clarification on what Paul was talking about in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear. What is that? Is that just the uh, idea of having anxiety, or is there something more sinister, something more specific in mind? What's being described?
1: Yeah. Now, um, we'll I'll flip to the passage real quick and read it. But essentially in the Greek, the word for that's usually translated spirit is either pneuma or psyche. So pneuma would refer to kind of like your life essence, right? That's where we get our word pneumatic from, which means like air powered. So it's your breath of life, it's your spark of life, if you wanna put it that way. But more often than not, it uses the word psyche from which we get our term psychiatry. So when we're talking about the spirit, We're not talking about necessarily some weird, ethereal, demonic presence that comes into your life named fear, right? There's no anthropomorphic, you know, like physical manifestation of fear itself that enters into your heart and controls you. Uh, What he's talking about is you could translate this a little differently. You could say uh, the mind of fear, Right, instead of the spirit of fear, the a mindset of fear. So let's read the passage, and I'll explain what I mean by that. So, Second Timothy chapter one, and. Let's start in verse five. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother, and I am persuaded is in you also. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So if you look at the reason why I backed up a little bit is because the context that's going on is that Timothy is really questioning how sold out to the faith he wants to be, given the rise in persecution that's that's occurring in the early church, right? So Timothy is not like he's saying, I don't want to be a Christian anymore, but he's saying, maybe I don't want to be an active Christian anymore. Maybe I don't want to really... say that, you know, like advertise the fact that I'm a Christian concerning the fact that Paul and Peter are both in prison right now and one's going to get his head cut off and the other's going to be crucified upside down. Maybe I don't really want to be associated with these guys too closely, lest a similar thing happen to me. So Timothy's kind of backing up from living as an outspoken Christian because of the rise of persecution. Totally makes sense. What Paul's saying is you shouldn't live in a spirit of fear. You shouldn't have this mindset that's ruled by fear, in other words, that your behavior is being governed by by your fearful instinct. You're afraid of losing your life. You're afraid of losing your prosperity as a result of being associated with the apostles and with the Christian faith. Well, Timothy, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, meaning that doesn't actually descend from God. Now, he could also be referencing a way that people sometimes justify fear. They call it caution like, well, I'm not being anxious or stressed out, but this is just a cautious way that I'm going to address the situation. You see, I'm actually being wise. Now, sometimes you are, but sometimes you are being a coward, right? So uh, very often you're not utilizing wisdom. You actually are acting out of an unreasonable amount of fear. So a good example would be, you know, let's say somebody says, well, I don't want to go to the amusement park. Well, why not? Well, people can fall off the roller coasters and die. Well, can can that happen? Yeah, I can't tell you you're wrong, but the odds of that happening are so astronomically high. Well, if you're that afraid of that kind of astronomically high eventuality, you probably shouldn't ever get in the car either because of far higher odds of dying in a car wreck than you do at an amusement park. So you can see someone's being governed by that spirit of fear. They're not actually thinking things through. They're just behaving out of that kind of overcautious anxiety that they're perpetrating as wisdom. So Paul is saying, this isn't caution, Timothy. God hasn't given you this. This isn't caution. This isn't wisdom. This is fear. You're acting out of a means of fear. How do I know you're acting out of a means of fear? But he has given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Well, Timothy, does your life signify power right now while you're hiding and trying to preserve your life at any cost? Or, weakness. Is, it sig- or weakness. is it signifying love and compassion for you know, your father in the faith who's about to be decapitated in a couple weeks and you're not even willing to come and see me because you're afraid of what that's gonna do. Uh, You know, are you really demonstrating love by doing that, Timothy? Probably not. Or pride. Uh, Or pride. Uh, Are you demonstrating a sound mind? Are you actually, do you have a sober mindset? Or are you kind? Of, are you filled with anxiety and fear and worry about what might happen to you? So that's Paul's challenge. So I hope that helps.
0: Yeah. And again, you need to necessarily know the definitions or difference or even the spelling of psyche versus numa and all those other things. Just note the whole sentence when he right. says what he hasn't given you or what has he given you? Power, love, and a sound mind. Well, what's he then not given you? Probably the opposite of those things, as you laid out. And you give us a brief follow-up that uh, members of your acquaintance uh, would clap their hands when someone is afraid and say, I rebuke the spirit of fear in Jesus' name and speak something, and quote that verse, um, fun, but where do we, and this is how you would challenge these sort of approaches towards the Bible. If someone's being goofy or weird, again, they can just be that kind of individual. They need that sort of passion in their relationship with God, not necessarily because they're unstable, because that's how they establish stability, through passion. God bless them, but truth is more important than feelings, and that's something that we all need to be getting in the habit of. Now note, I could use a little bit more passion sometimes, but I don't want to do that At the cost of truth, you got me and you got those, both are mistakes. The point being made is we want to be in the right, and how do you do that? Well, ask, why are you doing that? What is motivating this sort of thing? You say, well, it says in the Bible, okay, it says those words in that order, but how is it communicated? Do you have an example with the apostles of them clapping their hands and rebuking someone's fear,
1: or do you just see them providing comfort? Or that fear is ever depicted as a persona, like an extra, like an out-of-your-body persona, demonic persona that can infect people, right? And this is a good way to test a lot of things. If you're put in a situation where it says, well, Jesus
0: commanded violence when he said that he was going to burn down those cities and have his enemies slain before his feet, you don't even have to go to those verses, say, okay, when did his followers follow through on that? Well, the Crusades, oh, so it took a thousand years for them to know what Jesus meant? What about his immediate followers? What did they do when a city rejected him? They shook the dust off their feet literally that's what he meant but if on the other hand they note those non sequiturs then you have to say okay so truth isn't an issue here right what does that mean Now, again, you can be more gracious about it or more caustic, depending on the kind of individual you're talking to, but make sure that when it comes to our own reasons for doing things, it's always at a snail's pace. Make sure you know where you're stepping, where you're going, what you're doing, and if it lines up with Scripture.
1: And real quick, uh, for people who believe that fear is a sin, you're going to have to reconcile the fact that Jesus experienced anxiety before the cross, such strong anxiety that he actually sweat blood. So... Um, Obviously, fear is not a sin. The following of it, which is what Paul's rebuking here, is a sin. So we need to act out of courage, which means the mastery of our fear.
0: All right. Thank you all for joining us. We'll talk to you all again tomorrow. Let us know if you have questions in advance in the meantime or that we missed. Technology betrays us. Until then, God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time.